Chapter 25, Section 5, Parts A through C of Capital, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Capital, A Critical Analysis of Capitalist Production, Volume 1 by Karl Marx. Translated from the Third German Edition by Samuel Moore and Edward Aveling, and edited by Frederick Engels. Part 7. The Accumulation of Capital. Chapter 25. The General Law of Capitalist Accumulation. Section 5. Illustrations of the General Law of Capitalist Accumulation. Parts A through C. Section 5. Illustrations of the General Law of Capitalist Accumulation. Part A. England from 1846 to 1866. No period of modern society is so favorable for the study of capitalist accumulation as the period of the last twenty years. It is as if this period had found Fortunatus's purse. But of all countries England again furnishes the classical example because it holds the foremost place in the world market, because capitalist production is here alone completely developed, and lastly because the introduction of the free trade millennium since 1846 has cut off the last retreat of vulgar economy. The titanic advance of production, the latter half of the twenty years period again far surpassing the former, has been already pointed out sufficiently in Part 4. Although the absolute increase of the English population in the last half century was very great, the relative increase or rate of growth fell constantly, as the following table borrowed from the census shows. Annual increase percent of the population of England and Wales in decimal numbers, 1811 to 1821, 1.5333%, 1821-1831, 1.446%, 1831-1841, 1.326%, 1841-1851-1.216%, Let us now, on the other hand, consider the increase of wealth. Here the movement of profit, rent of land, etc., that come under the income tax, furnishes the surest basis. The increase of profits liable to income tax, farmers and some other categories not included, in Great Britain from 1853 to 1864 amounted to 50.47% or 4.58% as the annual average, and that of the population during the same period to about 12%. Footnote 31 Tenth Report of the Commissioners of His Majesty's Inland Revenue, London, 1866, page 38. End of footnote 31 the augmentation of the rent of land subject to taxation, including houses, railways, mines, fisheries, etc., amounted for 1853 to 1864 to 38%, or 3 and 5 twelfths percent annually. Under this head, the following categories show the greatest increase. Houses increased 38.60% from 1864 over that of 1853, an increase of 3.5% per year. Quarries increased from 1853 to 1864 by 84.76%, an increase of 7.7% per year. Mines increased between 1853 and 1864 by 68.85%, an increase of 6.26% per year. Ironworks increased from 1853 to 1864 by 39.92%, an increase of 3.63% per year. Fisheries increased 57.37% between 1853 and 1864, an increase of 5.21% per year. Gasworks increased 126.02% between 1853 and 1864, an increase of 11.45% per year and railways increased by 83.29% between 1853 and 1864, an increase of 7.57% annually. If we compare the years from 1853 to 1864 in three sets of four consecutive years each, the rate of augmentation of the income increases constantly. Footnote 32, IBID. End of footnote 32. 
It is, for example, for that arising from profits between 1853 to 1857, 1.73% 1 yearly, 1857 to 1861, 2.74%, and for 1861 to 64, 9.30% yearly. The sum of the incomes of the United Kingdom that come under the income tax was in 1856, 307,068,898 pounds sterling. In 1859, 328,127,416 pounds sterling. In 1862, 351,745,241 pounds sterling. In 1863, 359,142,897 pounds sterling. In 1864, 362,462,279 pounds sterling. In 1865, 385,530,020 pounds sterling. Footnote 33. These figures are sufficient for comparison, but taken absolutely are false, since perhaps 100 million pounds of income are annually not declared. The complaints of the Inland Revenue Commissioners of systematic fraud, especially on the part of the commercial and industrial classes, are repeated in each of their reports. So, for example, quote, a joint stock company returns 6,000 pounds sterling as assessable profits. The surveyor raises the amount to 88,000 pounds, and upon that sum duty is ultimately paid. Another company, which returns 190,000 pounds sterling, is finally compelled to admit that the true return should be 250,000 pounds sterling, end of quote, Ibid, page 42, end of footnote 33. The accumulation of capital was attended at the same time by its concentration and centralization. Although no official statistics of agriculture existed for England, they did for Ireland, they were voluntarily given in ten counties. These statistics gave the result that from 1851 to 1861 the number of farms of less than 100 acres had fallen from 31,583 to 26,597, so that 5,016 had been thrown together into larger farms. Footnote 34, Census, etc., location cited, page 29. John Bright's assertion that 150 landlords own half of England and 12 half the Scotch soil has never been refuted. End of footnote 34. From 1815 to 1825, no personal estate of more than one million pounds sterling came under the succession duty. From 1825 to 1855, however, eight did, and four from 1856 to June 1859, i.e., in four and a half years. Footnote 35, Fourth Report, etc., of Inland Revenue, London, 1860, page 17. End of footnote 35. The centralization will, however, be best seen from a short analysis of the income tax Schedule D, namely profits exclusive of farms, etc., in the years 1864 and 1865. I note beforehand that incomes from this source pay income tax on everything over £60 sterling. These incomes liable to taxation in England, Wales, and Scotland amounted in 1864 to £95,844,222 sterling, in 1865 to £105,435,579 sterling, footnote 36. These are the net incomes after certain legally authorized abatements. End of footnote 36. The number of persons taxed were in 1864 308,416 out of a population of 23,891,009. In 1865, 332,431 out of a population of 24,127,003. The following table shows the distribution of these incomes in the two years. In the year ending April 5, 1864, the income from profits total was £95,844,222, which was collected from 308,416 people. In the year ending April 5, 1865, the, the total income from profits was £105,435,738, uh, pounds sterling, 
uh, collected from 332,431 people. Uh, of these, in the year ending April 5, 1864, the income from profits uh, amounted to 57,028,289 pounds sterling, collected from 23,334 people. And in the year ending April 5, uh, 1865, the income from profits was 64,554,297 pounds sterling, collected from 24,265 people. Of these, in April 5, 1864, 36,415,225 pounds sterling were collected from 3,619 people, while in 1865, 42,535,576 pounds sterling was collected from 4,021 people. And of these, in 1864, 22,809,781 pounds sterling was collected from 832 people. In 1865, 27,555,313 pounds sterling were collected from 973 people. Of these, in 1864, 8,744,762 pounds sterling were collected from 91 people. In 1865, 11,077,238 pounds sterling were collected from 107 people. In 1855, there were produced in the United Kingdom 61,453,079 tons of coal of the value of 16,113,167 pounds sterling. In 1864, 92,787,873 tons of value 23,197,968 pounds sterling. In 1855, 3,218,154 tons of pig iron of value 8,045,385 pounds sterling. In 1864, 4,767,951 tons of value 11,919,877 pounds sterling. In 1854, the length of the railroads worked in the United Kingdom was 8,054 miles, with a paid-up capital of 286,068,794 pounds sterling. In 1864, the length was 12,789 miles, with capital paid up of 425,719,613 pounds sterling. In 1854, the total sum of the exports and imports of the United Kingdom was 268,210,145 pounds sterling. In 1865, 489,923,285 pounds sterling. The following table shows the movement of the exports. 1846, 58,842,377 pounds sterling. 1849, 63,596,052 pounds sterling. In 1856, 115,826,948 pounds sterling. In 1860, 135,842,817 pounds sterling. In 1865, 165,862,402 pounds sterling. In 1866, 188,917,563 pounds sterling. Footnote 37. At this moment, March 1867, the Indian and Chinese market is again overstocked by the consignments of the British cotton manufacturers. In 1866, a reduction in wages of 5% took place amongst the cotton operatives. In 1867, as consequence of a similar operation, there was a strike of 20,000 men at Preston. Added in the fourth German edition. That was the prelude to the crisis which broke out immediately afterwards. F.E. End of footnote 37. After these few examples, one understands the cry of triumph of the Registrar-General of the British people, quote, Rapidly as the population has increased, it has not kept pace with the progress of industry and wealth. End of quote. Footnote 38. 
census, etc., location cited, page 11, end of footnote 38. Let us now turn to the direct agents of this industry, or the producers of this wealth, to the working class. Quote, it is one of the most melancholy features in the social state of this country, end quote, says Gladstone, quote, that while there was a decrease in the consuming powers of the people, and while there was an increase in the privations and distress of the laboring class and operatives, there was at the same time a constant accumulation of wealth in the upper classes and a constant increase of capital. End of quote. Footnote 39. Gladstone in the House of Commons, February 13, 1843, Times, February 14, 1843. Quote, it is one of the most melancholy features in the social state of this country that we see beyond the possibility of denial that while there is at this moment a decrease in the consuming powers of the people an increase of the pressure of privations and distress there is at the same time a constant accumulation of wealth in the upper classes an increase of the luxuriousness of their habits and of their means of enjoyment end of quote hansard thirteenth february end of footnote thirty nine Thus spake this unctuous minister in the House of Commons of February 13, 1843. On April 16, 1863, twenty years later, in the speech in which he introduced his budget, quote, From 1842 to 1852 the taxable income of the country increased by 6%. In the eight years from 1853, it had increased from the basis taken in 1853 by 20%. The fact is so astonishing as to be almost incredible. This intoxicating augmentation of wealth and power, entirely confined to classes of property, must be of indirect benefit to the laboring population because it cheapens the commodities of general consumption. While the rich have been growing richer, the poor have been growing less poor. At any rate, whether the extremes of poverty are less, I do not presume to say. End of quote. Footnote 40. Gladstone in the House of Commons, April 16, 1863. Morning Star, April 17th. End of footnote 40. How lame an anticlimax! If the working class has remained, quote, poor, only, quote, less poor, end quote, in proportion as it produces for the wealthy class, quote, an intoxicating augmentation of wealth and power, end quote, then it has remained relatively just as poor. If the extremes of poverty have not lessened, they have increased, because the extremes of wealth have. As to the cheapening of the means of subsistence, the official statistics, e.g. the accounts of the London Orphan Asylum, show an increase in price of 20% for the average of the three years 1860 to 1862 compared with 1851 to 1853. In the following three years, 1863 to 1865, there was a progressive rise in the price of meat, butter, milk, sugar, salt, coals, and a number of other necessary means of subsistence. Footnote 41. See the official accounts in the Blue Book, Miscellaneous Statistics of the United Kingdom, Part 6, London, 1866, pages 260 to 273, Passim. Instead of the statistics of orphan asylums, etc., the declamations of the ministerial journals in recommending dowries for the royal children might also serve. The greater dearness of the means of subsistence is never forgotten there. End of footnote 41. Gladstone's next budget speech of April 7, 1864, is a pindaric dithyrambus on the advance of surplus value-making and the happiness of the people, quote, tempered by poverty, end quote. He speaks of masses, quote, on the border, unquote, of pauperism, of branches of trade in which, quote, wages have not increased, end quote, and finally sums up the happiness of the working class in the words, quote, Human life is but in nine cases out of ten a struggle for existence. End of quote. Footnote 42, Gladstone, House of Commons, 7th April 1864. Quote, the Hansard version runs, quote, Again and yet more at large, what is human life but in the majority of cases a struggle for existence? End of quote. The continual crying contradictions in Gladstone's budget speeches of 1863 and 1864 were characterized by an English writer by the following quotation from Boileau. Quote, 
Voilà l'homme, en effet. Il va du blanc au noir, il condamne au matin ses sentiments du soir. Important à tout autre, à soi-même incommode, il change à tout moment d'esprit comme de mode. End of quote. Such is the man. He goes from black to white. He condemns in the morning what he felt in the evening. A nuisance to everyone else, and an inconvenience to himself, he changes his way of thinking as easily as he changes his way of dressing. End of quote. The Theory of Exchanges, London, 1864, page 135, end of footnote 42. Professor Fawcett, not bound like Gladstone by official considerations, declares roundly, quote, I do not, of course, deny that money wages have been augmented by this increase of capital in the last ten years, but this apparent advantage is to a great extent lost, because many of the necessaries of life are becoming dearer, end of quote he believes because of the fall in value of the precious metals. Quote, the rich grow rapidly richer whilst there is no perceptible advance in the comfort enjoyed by the industrial classes. They, the laborers, become almost the slaves of the tradesmen to whom they owe money. End of quote. Footnote 43. H. Fawcett, location cited, page 67 to 82. As to the increasing dependence of laborers on the retail shopkeepers, this is the consequence of the frequent oscillations and interruptions of their employment. End of footnote 43. In the chapters on the, quote, working day, end quote, end quote, machinery, end quote, the reader has seen under what circumstances the British working class created, quote, an intoxicating augmentation of wealth and power, end of quote, for the propertied classes. There we were chiefly concerned with the social functioning of the laborer. But for a full elucidation of the law of accumulation, his condition outside the workshop must also be looked at, his condition as to food and dwelling. The limits of this book compel us to concern ourselves chiefly with the worst-paid part of the industrial proletariat, and with the agricultural laborers who together form the majority of the working class. But first one word on official pauperism, or on that part of the working class which has forfeited its condition of existence, the sale of labor power, and vegetates upon public alms. The official list of paupers numbered in England 851,369 persons, in 1856 877,767, in 1865 971,433. Footnote 44. Wales here is always included in England. End of footnote 44. In consequence of the cotton famine, it grew in the years 1863 and 1864 to 1,079,382 and 1,014,978. The crisis of 1866, which fell most heavily on London, created in this centre of the world market, more populous than the Kingdom of Scotland, an increase of pauperism for the year 1866 of 19.5% compared with 1865, and of 24.4% compared with 1864, and a still greater increase for the first months of 1867 as compared with 1866. From the analysis of the statistics of pauperism, two points are to be taken. On the one hand, the fluctuation up and down of the number of paupers reflects the periodic changes of the industrial cycle. On the other, the official statistics become more and more misleading as to the actual extent of pauperism in proportion as with the accumulation of capital the class struggle and therefore the class consciousness of the workingmen develop. For example, the barbarity in the treatment of the paupers at which the English press, the Times, Pall Gazette, etc., have cried out so loudly during the last two years, is of ancient date. F. Engels showed in 1844 exactly the same horrors, exactly the same transient canting outcries of, quote, sensational literature, end of quote. But frightful increase of, quote, deaths by starvation, end of quote, in London during the last ten years proves beyond doubt the growing horror in which the working people hold the slavery of the workhouse, that place of punishment for misery. Footnote 45. A peculiar light is thrown on the advance made since the time of Adam Smith by the fact that by him the word workhouse is still occasionally used as synonymous with manufactory e.g., the opening of his chapter on the division of labor, quote, 
Those employed in every different branch of the work can often be collected into the same workhouse. End of quote. End of footnote 45. Part B. The Badly Paid Strata of the British Industrial Class During the cotton famine of 1862, Dr. Smith was charged by the Privy Council with an inquiry into the conditions of nourishment of the distressed operatives in Lancashire and Cheshire. His observations during many preceding years had led him to the conclusion that, quote, to avert starvation diseases, end of quote, the daily food of an average woman ought to contain at least 3,900 grains of carbon with 180 grains of nitrogen, the daily food of an average man at least 4,300 grains of carbon with 200 grains of nitrogen, for women about the same quantity of nutritive elements as are contained in two pounds of good wheaten bread, for men one-ninth more. For the weekly average of adult men and women, at least 28,600 grains of carbon and 1,330 grains of nitrogen. His calculation was practically confirmed in a surprising manner by its agreement with the miserable quantity of nourishment to which want had forced down the consumption of the cotton operatives. This was in December 1862, 29,211 grains of carbon and 1,295 grains of nitrogen weekly. In the year 1863, the Privy Council ordered an inquiry into the state of distress of the worst nourished part of the English working class. Dr. Simon, medical officer to the Privy Council, chose for this work the above-mentioned Dr. Smith. His inquiry ranges on the one hand over the agricultural laborers, on the other over silk weavers, needlewomen, kid glovers, stocking weavers, glove weavers, and shoemakers. The latter categories are, with the exception of the stocking weavers, exclusively town-dwellers. It was made a rule in the inquiry to select in each category the most healthy families, and those comparatively in the best circumstances. As a general result, it was found that, quote, in only one of the examined classes of indoor operatives did the average nitrogen supply just exceed, while in another it nearly reached the estimated standard of bare sufficiency, i.e. sufficient to avert starvation diseases, and that in two classes there was a defect, in one a very large defect, of both nitrogen and carbon. Moreover, as regards the examined families of the agricultural population, it appeared that more than a fifth were with less than the estimated sufficiency of carbonaceous food, that more than one-third were with less than the estimated sufficiency of nitrogenous food, and that in three counties, Berkshire, Oxfordshire, and Somersetshire, insufficiency of nitrogenous food was the average local diet. End of quote. Footnote 46, Public Health, 6th Report, 1864, page 13, end of footnote 46. Among the agricultural laborers, those of England, the wealthiest part of the United Kingdom, were the worst fed. Footnote 47, location cited, page 17, end of footnote 47. The insufficiency of food among the agricultural laborers fell as a rule chiefly on the women and children, for, quote, the man must eat to do his work, end of quote. Still greater penury ravaged the town workers examined. Quote, they are so ill-fed that assuredly among them there must be many cases of severe and injurious privation, end of quote. Footnote 48, location cited page 13, end of footnote 48. Privation of the capitalist all this i.e., quote, abstinence, end of quote, from paying for the means of subsistence absolutely necessary for the mere vegetation of his, quote, hands, end of quote. Footnote 49, location cited, appendix page 232, end of footnote 49. The following table shows the conditions of nourishment of the above-named categories of purely town-dwelling workpeople as compared with a minimum assumed by Dr. Smith, and with the food allowance of the cotton operatives during the time of their greatest distress. Both sexes of five indoor occupations, the average weekly carbon was 28,876 grains, and the average weekly nitrogen was 1,192 grains. The unemployed Lancashire operatives had an average weekly carbon intake of 28,211 grains, and an average weekly nitrogen of 1,295 grains. The minimum quantity be allowed to the Lancashire operatives, equal number of males and females, was 28,600 grains, and the average weekly nitrogen, 1,330 grains. 
one-half or sixty of one hundred and twenty-five of the industrial labor categories investigated had absolutely no beer, twenty-eight percent no milk. The weekly average of the liquid means of nourishment in the families varied from seven ounces in the needlewomen to twenty-four and three-quarter ounces in the stocking makers. The majority of those who did not obtain milk were needlewomen in London. The quantity of breadstuffs consumed weekly varied from seven and three-quarter pounds for the needlewomen to eleven and a half pounds for the shoemakers, and gave a total average of nine point nine pounds per adult weekly. Sugar, for example, treacle, etc., varied from four ounces weekly for the kid glovers to eleven ounces for the stocking makers, and the total average per week for all categories was eight ounces per adult weekly. Total weekly average of butter, fat, etc., five ounces per adult. The weekly average of meat, bacon, etc., varied from seven and a quarter ounces for the silk weavers to eighteen and a quarter ounces for the kid glovers. Total average for the different categories, thirteen point six ounces. The weekly cost of food per adult gave the following average figures. Silk weavers, two shillings, two and a half pence. Needlewomen, two shillings, seven pence. Kid glovers, two shillings, nine and a half pence. Shoemakers, two shillings, seven and three quarter pence. Stocking weavers, two shillings, six and a quarter pence. For the silk weavers of Macclesfield, the average was only one shilling, eight and a half pence. The worst categories were the needlewomen, silk weavers, and kid glovers. Footnote 50. Location cited pages 232 and 233, and the footnote 50. Of these facts, Dr. Simon, in his general health report, says, quote, that cases are innumerable in which defective diet is the cause or the aggravator of disease can be affirmed by anyone who is conversant with poor law medical practice or with the wards and outpatient rooms of hospitals. Yet in this point of view there is, in my opinion, a very important sanitary context to be added. It must be remembered that privation of food is very reluctantly borne, and that as a rule great poorness of diet will only come when other privations have preceded it. Long before insufficiency of diet is a matter of hygienic concern, long before the physiologist would think of counting the grains of nitrogen and carbon which intervene between life and starvation, the household will have been utterly destitute of material comfort. Clothing and fuel will have been even scantier than food. Against inclemencies of weather there will have been no adequate protection. Dwelling space will have been stinted to the degree in which overcrowding produces or increases disease. Of household utensils and furniture there will have been scarcely any. Even cleanliness will have been found costly or difficult, and if there still be self-respectful endeavors to maintain it, every such endeavor will represent additional pangs of hunger. The home, too, will be where shelter can be cheapest bought, in quarters where commonly there is least fruit of sanitary supervision, least drainage, least scavenging, least suppression of public nuisances, least or worst water supply, and if in town, least light and air. Such are the sanitary dangers to which poverty is almost certainly exposed, when it is poverty enough to imply scantiness of food." And while the sum of them is of terrible magnitude against life, the mere scantiness of food is in itself of a very serious moment. These are painful reflections, especially when it's remembered that the poverty to which they advert is not the deserved poverty of idleness. In all cases it is the poverty of working populations. Indeed, as regards the indoor operatives, the work which obtains the scanty pittance of food is for the most part excessively prolonged. Yet, evidently, it is only in a qualified sense that the work can be deemed self-supporting. And on a very large scale, the nominal self-support can be only a circuit, longer or shorter, to pauperism. End of quote. Footnote 51. Location cited, pages 14 and 15. End of footnote 51. The intimate connection between the pangs of hunger of the most industrious layers of the working class and the extravagant consumption, coarse or refined, of the rich, for which capitalist accumulation is the basis, reveals itself only when the economic laws are known. It is otherwise with the, quote, housing of the poor, end quote. Every unprejudiced observer sees that the greater the centralization of the means of production, the greater is the corresponding heaping together of the laborers within a given space, that therefore the swifter capitalistic accumulation, the more miserable are the dwellings of the working people. 
so-called improvements of towns accompanying the increase of wealth, by the demolition of badly built quarters, the erection of palaces for banks, warehouses, etc., the widening of streets for business traffic, for the carriages of luxury, and for the introduction of tramways, etc., drive away the poor into even worse and more crowded hiding-places. On the other hand, everyone knows that the dearness of dwellings is in inverse ratio to their excellence, and that the mines of misery are exploited by house-speculators with more profit or less cost than ever were the mines of Potosi. The antagonistic character of capitalist accumulation, and therefore of the capitalistic relations of property generally, is here so evident that even the official English reports on this subject teem with heterodox onslaughts on, quote, property and its rights, end of quote, footnote 52. Quote, in no particular have the rights of persons been so avowedly and shamefully sacrificed to the rights of property as in regard to the lodging of the laboring class. Every large town may be looked upon as a place of human sacrifice, a shrine where thousands pass yearly through the fire as offerings to the Moloch of Avarice. End of quote. S. Lang, location cited, page 150, end of footnote 52. With the development of industry, with the accumulation of capital, with the growth and so-called improvement of towns, the evil makes such progress that the mere fear of contagious diseases, which do not spare even, quote, respectability, end quote, brought into existence from 1847 to 1864 no less than ten acts of Parliament on sanitation, and that the frightened bourgeois in some towns, as Liverpool, Glasgow, etc., took strenuous measures through their municipalities. Nevertheless, Dr. Simon, in his report of 1865, says, quote, Speaking generally, it may be said that the evils are uncontrolled in England. End of quote. By order of the Privy Council in 1864, an inquiry was made into the conditions of the housing of the agricultural laborers, in 1865, of the poorer classes in the towns. The results of the admirable work of Dr. Julian Hunter are to be found in the 7th, 1865, and 8th, 1866, reports on public health. To the agricultural laborers I shall come later. On the condition of town dwellings I quote as preliminary a general remark of Dr. Simon. Quote, Although my official point of view, he says, is one exclusively physical, common humanity requires that the other aspect of this evil should not be ignored. In its higher degrees, it, i.e., overcrowding, almost necessarily involves such negation of all delicacy, such unclean confusion of bodies and bodily functions, such exposure of animal and sexual nakedness, as is rather bestial than human. To be subject to these influences is degradation, which must become deeper and deeper for those on whom it continues to work. To children who are born under its curse, it must often be a very baptism into infamy. And beyond all measure hopeless is the wish that persons thus circumstanced should ever in other respects aspire to that atmosphere of civilization which has its essence in physical and moral cleanliness. End of quote. Footnote 53. Public Health, 8th Report, 1866, page 14. Note. End of footnote 53. London takes the first place in overcrowded habitations, absolutely unfit for human beings. Quote, he feels clear, says Dr. Hunter, on two points. First, that there are about twenty large colonies in London, of about ten thousand persons each, whose miserable condition exceeds almost anything he has seen anywhere in England, and is almost entirely the result of their bad house accommodations and second, that the crowded and dilapidated condition of the houses of these colonies is much worse than was the case twenty years ago. End of quote. Footnote 54. Location cited, page 89. With reference to the children in these colonies, Dr. Hunter says, quote, People are not now alive to tell us how children were brought up before this age of dense agglomeration of poor began, and he would be a rash prophet who should tell us what future behavior is to be expected from the present growth of children, who under circumstances probably never before paralleled in this country, are now completing their education for future practice as, quote, dangerous classes, end quote, by sitting up half the night with persons of every age, half-naked, drunken, obscene, and quarrelsome, End of quote. Location cited, page 56. 
End of footnote 54. Quote, It is not too much to say that life in parts of London and Newcastle is infernal. End of quote. Footnote 55. Location cited, page 62. End of footnote 55. Further, the better-off part of the working class, together with the small shopkeepers and other elements of the lower middle class, falls in London more and more under the curse of these vile conditions of dwelling, in proportion as so-called improvements, and with them the demolition of old streets and houses, advance, as factories and the afflux of human beings grow in the metropolis, and finally as house-rents rise with the ground-rents. Quotes, Rents have become so heavy that few laboring men can afford more than one room. End quote. Footnote 56. Report of the Officer of Health of St. Martin in the Fields, 1865. End of footnote 56. There is almost no house property in London that is not overburdened with a number of middlemen. For the price of land in London is always very high in comparison with its yearly revenue, and therefore every buyer speculates on getting rid of it again at a jury price, the expropriation valuation fixed by jurymen, or on pocketing an extraordinary increase of value arising from the neighborhood of some large establishment. As a consequence of this, there is a regular trade in the purchase of, quote, fag ends of leases, end quote. Quote, Gentlemen in this business may be fairly expected to do as they do, get all they can from the tenants while they have them, and leave as little as they can for their successors. End of quote. Footnote 57. Public Health, 8th Report, 1866, page 91. End of footnote 57. The rents are weekly, and these gentlemen run no risk. In consequence of the making of railroads in the city, quote, the spectacle has lately been seen in the east of London of a number of families wandering about some Saturday night with their scanty worldly goods on their backs, without any resting place but the workhouse. End of quote. Footnote 58. Location cited, page 88. End of footnote 58. The workhouses are already overcrowded, and the so-called improvements already sanctioned by Parliament are only just begun. If laborers are driven away by the demolition of their old houses, they do not leave their old parish, or at most they settle down on its borders as near as they can get to it. Quote, they try, of course, to remain as near as possible to their workshops. The inhabitants do not go beyond the same or the next parish, parting their two-room tenements into single rooms and crowding even those. Even at an advanced rent, the people who are displaced will hardly be able to get an accommodation so good as the meagre one they have left. Half the workmen of the Strand walk two miles to their work. End of quote. Footnote 59. Location cited, page 88. End of footnote 59. The same strand, a main thoroughfare which gives strangers an imposing idea of the wealth of London, may serve as an example of the packing together of human beings in that town. In one of its parishes, the officer of health reckoned 581 persons per acre, although half the width of the Thames was reckoned in. It will be self-understood that if every sanitary measure, which, as has been the case hitherto in London, hunts the laborers from one quarter by demolishing uninhabitable houses, serves only to crowd them together yet more closely in another. Quote, either, says Dr. Hunter, the whole proceeding will of necessity stop as an absurdity, or the public compassion, exclamation point, be effectually aroused to the obligation, which may now be without exaggeration called national, of supplying cover to those who by reason of their having no capital cannot provide it for themselves, though they can by periodical payments reward those who will provide it for them. End of quote. Footnote 60. Location cited. Page 89. End of footnote 60. Admire this capitalistic justice. The owner of land, of houses, the businessman, when expropriated by so-called improvements such as railroads, the building of new streets, etc., not only receives full indemnity, he must, according to law, human and divine, be comforted for his enforced, quote, abstinence, end quote, over and above this by a thumping profit. The laborer, with his wife and child in chattels, is thrown out into the street, and, if he crowds in too large numbers towards quarters of the town where the vestries insist on decency, he is prosecuted in the name of sanitation. 
Except London, there was at the beginning of the nineteenth century no single town in England of one hundred thousand inhabitants. Only five had more than fifty thousand. Now there are twenty-eight towns with more than fifty thousand inhabitants. Quote, the result of this change is not only that the class of town people is enormously increased, but the old close-packed little towns are now centres, built round on every side, open nowhere to air, and being no longer agreeable to the rich, are abandoned by them for the pleasanter outskirts. The successors of these rich are occupying the larger houses at the rate of a family to each room, and find accommodation for two or three lodgers and a population for which the houses were not intended and quite unfit has been created whose surroundings are truly degrading to the adults and ruinous to the children End of quote. footnote sixty one location cited page fifty five and fifty six and footnote sixty one the more rapidly capital accumulates in an industrial or commercial town, the more rapidly flows the stream of exploitable human material, the more miserable are the improvised dwellings of the laborers. Newcastle-on-Tyne, as the center of a coal and iron district of growing productiveness, takes the next place after London in the housing inferno. Not less than 34,000 persons live there in single rooms. Because of their absolute danger to the community, houses in great numbers have lately been destroyed by the authorities in Newcastle and Gateshead. The building of new houses progresses very slowly, business very quickly. The town was therefore in 1865 more full than ever. Scarcely a room was to let. Dr. Ambleton of the Newcastle Fever Hospital says, quote, there can be little doubt that the great cause of the continuance and spread of the typhus has been the overcrowding of human beings and the uncleanliness of their dwellings. The rooms in which laborers in many cases live are situated and confined in unwholesome yards or courts, and for space, light, air, and cleanliness are models of insufficiency and insalubrity, and a disgrace to any civilized community. In them, men, women, and children lie at night huddled together, and as regards the men, the night shift succeed the day shift, and the day shift the night shift, in unbroken series for some time together, the beds having scarcely time to cool, the whole house badly supplied with water, and worse with privies, dirty, unventilated, and pestiferous. End of quote. Footnote 62. Location cited, page 149. End of footnote 62. The price per week of such lodgings ranges from eightpence to three shillings. Quote, the town of Newcastle-on-Tyne, says Dr. Hunter, contains a sample of the finest tribe of our countrymen, often sunk by external circumstances of house and street into an almost savage degradation. End of quote. Footnote 63. Location cited page 50. End of footnote 63. As a result of the ebbing and flowing of capital and labor, the state of the dwellings of an industrial town may today be bearable and tomorrow hideous, or the edel ship of the town may have pulled itself together for the removal of the most shocking abuses. Tomorrow, like a swarm of locusts, come crowding in masses of ragged Irishmen or decayed English agricultural laborers. They are stowed away in cellars and lofts, or the hitherto respectable laborer's dwelling is transformed into a lodging house whose personnel changes as quickly as the billets in the Thirty Years' War. Example Bradford, Yorkshire. There the municipal Philistine was just busied with urban improvements. Besides, there were still in Bradford in 1861 1,751 uninhabited houses. But now comes that revival of trade which the mildly liberal Mr. Forster, the Negro's friend, recently crowed over with so much grace. With the revival of trade came, of course, an overflow from the waves of the ever-fluctuating, quote, reserve army, or, quote, relative surplus population, end quote. The frightful cellar habitations and rooms registered in the list which Dr. Hunter obtained from the agent of an insurance company were for the most part inhabited by well-paid laborers. Footnote 64. Table, Collecting Agents List, Bradford. Vulcan Street, number 122, one room, 16 persons. Lumiev Street, number 13, one room, 11 persons. Bower Street, number 41, one room, 11 persons. 
Ortland Street, number 112, one room, ten persons. Hardy Street, number 17, one room, ten persons. North Street, number 18, one room, sixteen persons. North Street, number 17, one room, thirteen persons. Weimar Street, number 19, one room, eight adults. Jowett Street, number 56, one room, twelve persons. George Street, number 150, one room, three families. Rifle Court Marygate, number 11, one room, eleven persons. Marshall Street, number 28, one room, ten persons. Marshall Street, number 49, one room, three families. George Street, number 128, one room, eighteen persons. George Street, number 130, one room, sixteen persons. Edward Street, number 4, one room, seventeen persons. George Street, number 49, one room, two families. York Street, number 34, one room, two families. Salt by Street, bottom, two rooms, twenty-six persons. Regent Square, one cellar, eight persons. Acre Street, one cellar, seven persons. Thirty-three Roberts Court, one cellar, seven persons. Back Pratt Street, used as a brazier's shop, one cellar, seven persons. 27 Ebenezer Street, 1 cellar, 6 persons, no male above 18. Source, location cited, page 11, end of footnote 64. They declared that they would willingly pay for better dwellings if they were to be had. Meanwhile they become degraded, they fall ill one and all, whilst the mildly liberal Forster MP sheds tears over the blessings of free trade and the profits of the eminent men of Bradford who deal in worsted. In the report of September 1865, Dr. Bell, one of the poor law doctors of Bradford, ascribes a frightful mortality of fever patients in his district to the nature of their dwellings. Quote, in one small cellar measuring 1,500 cubic feet, there are ten persons. Vincent Street, Green Air Place, and Delays include 223 houses having 1,450 inhabitants, 435 beds, and 36 privies. The beds, and in that term I include any roll of dirty old rags or an armful of shavings, have an average of 3.3 persons to each. Many have five and six persons to each, and some people, I am told, are absolutely without beds. They sleep in their ordinary clothes on the bare boards, young men and women, married and unmarried, all together. I need scarcely add that many of these dwellings are dark, damp, dirty, stinking holes, utterly unfit for human habitations. They are the centers from which disease and death are distributed amongst those in better circumstances who have allowed them thus to fester in our midst. End of quote. Footnote 65, location cited, page 114, end of footnote 65. Bristol takes the third place after London in the misery of its dwellings. Quote, Bristol, where the blankest poverty and domestic misery abound in the wealthiest town of Europe. End of quote. Footnote 66. Location cited, page 50. End of footnote 66. Part C. The Nomad Population. We turn now to a class of people whose origin is agricultural, but whose occupation is in great part industrial. They are the light infantry of capital, thrown by it according to its needs, now to this point, now to that. When they are not on the marsh, they quote, camp, unquote. Nomad labor is used for various operations of building and draining, brick-making, lime-burning, railway-making, etc. A flying column of pestilence. It carries into the places in whose neighborhood it pitches its camp smallpox, typhus, cholera, scarlet fever, etc. Footnote 67. Public Health, 7th Report, 1865, page 18. End of footnote 67. In undertakings that involve much capital outlay, such as railways, etc., the contractor himself generally provides his army with wooden huts and the like, thus improvising villages without any sanitary provisions outside the control of the local boards, very profitable to the contractor who exploits the laborers in twofold fashions, as soldiers of industry and as tenants. According as the wooden hut contains one, two, or three holes, its inhabitant, navvy, or whatever he may be, has to pay one, three, or four shillings weekly. Footnote 68, location cited, page 165, end of footnote 68. One example will suffice. 
In September 1864, Dr. Simon reports that the chairman of the Nuisances Removal Committee of the Parish of Sevenoaks sent the following denunciation to Sir George Gray, Home Secretary. Quote, Smallpox cases were rarely heard of in this parish until about twelve months ago. Shortly before that time, the works for a railway from Lewisham to Tunbridge were commenced here, and in addition to the principal works being in the immediate neighborhood of this town, here was also established a depot for the whole of the works, so that a large number of persons was of necessity employed here. As cottage accommodation could not be obtained for them all, huts were built in several places along the line of the works by the contractor, Mr. J., for their special occupation. These huts possessed no ventilation nor drainage, and besides were necessarily overcrowded, because each occupant had to accommodate lodgers, whatever the number in his own family might be, although there were only two rooms to each tenement. The consequences were, according to the medical report we received, that in the night-time these poor people were compelled to endure all the horror of suffocation to avoid the pestiferous smells arising from the filthy stagnant water and the privies close under their windows. Complaints were at length made to the Nuisances Removal Committee by a medical gentleman who had occasion to visit these huts, and he spoke of their condition as dwellings in the most severe terms, and he expressed his fears that some very serious consequences might ensue unless some sanitary measures were adopted. About a year ago Mr. J. promised to appropriate a hut to which persons in his employ who were suffering from contagious diseases might at once be removed. He repeated that promise on the 23rd of July last, but although since the date of the last promise there have been several cases of smallpox in his huts, and two deaths from the same disease, yet he has taken no steps whatever to carry out his promise. On the 9th September instant, Mr. Calson, surgeon, reported to be further cases of smallpox in the same huts, and he described their condition as most disgraceful. I should add for your, the Home Secretary's, information that an isolated house called a pest house, which is set apart for parishioners who might be suffering from infectious diseases, has been continually occupied by such patients from many months past, and is now also occupied. That in one family five children died from smallpox and fever, and that from the 1st April to the 1st September this year, a period of five months, there have been no fewer than ten deaths from smallpox in the parish, four of them being in the huts already referred to, that it is impossible to ascertain the exact number of persons who have suffered from that disease, although they are known to be many, from the fact of the families keeping it as private as possible. End of quote. Footnote 69. Location cited, page 18. Note. The relieving officer of the Chapel and Lafrith Union reported to the Registrar-General as follows, quote, At Dove Holes, a number of small excavations have been made into a large hillock of lime ashes, the refuse of lime kilns, and which are used as dwellings, and occupied by laborers and others employed in the construction of a railway now in course of construction through that neighborhood. The excavations are small and damp, and have no drains or privies about them, and not the slightest means of ventilation, except up a hole pulled through the top and used for a chimney. In consequence of this defect, smallpox has been raging for some time, and some deaths amongst the troglodytes have been caused by it. End of quote. Location cited node 2. End of footnote 69. The laborers in coal and other mines belong to the best-paid categories of the British proletariat. The price at which they buy their wages was shown on an earlier page. Footnote 70. The details given at the end of Part 4 refer especially to the laborers in coal mines. On the still worse condition in metal mines, see the very conscientious report of the Royal Commission of 1864. End of footnote 70. Here I merely cast a hurried glance over the conditions of their dwellings. As a rule, the exploiter of a mine, whether its owner or his tenant, builds a number of cottages for his hands. They receive cottages and coal for firing, quote, for nothing, unquote, i.e., these form part of their wages paid in kind. Those who are not lodged in this way receive in compensation four pounds per annum. The mining districts attract with rapidity a large population made up of the miners themselves, and the artisans, shopkeepers, etc., that group themselves around them. The ground rents are high, as they are generally where population is dense. 
The master tries, therefore, to run up within the smallest space possible at the mouth of the bit just so many cottages as are necessary to pack together his hands and their families. If new mines are opened in the neighborhood or old ones are again set working, the pressure increases. In the construction of the cottages, only one point of view is of moment, the, quote, abstinence, end quote, of the capitalist from all expenditure that is not absolutely unavoidable. Quote, the lodging which is obtained by the pitmen and other laborers connected with the collieries of Northumberland and Durham, end quote, says Dr. Julian Hunter, quote, is perhaps on the whole the worst and the dearest of which any large specimens can be found in England. The similar parishes of Monmouthshire excepted. The extreme badness is in the high number of men found in one room, in the smallness of the ground plot on which a great number of houses are thrust, the want of water, the absence of privies, and the frequent placing of one house on the top of another, or distribution into flats. The lessee acts as if the whole colony were encamped, not resident. End of quote. Footnote 71. Location cited, pages 180, 182. End of footnote 71. Quote, In pursuance of my instructions, says Dr. Stevens, I visited most of the large colliery villages in the Durham Union. With very few exceptions, the general statement that no means are taken to secure the health of the inhabitants would be true of all of them. All colliers are bound, bound, an expression which, like bondage, dates from the age of serfdom, to the colliery lessee or owner for twelve months. If the colliers express discontent or in any way annoy the so-called viewer, a mark of memorandum is made against their names, and at the annual so-called binding such men are turned off. It appears to me that no part of the so-called truck system could be worse than what obtains in these densely populated districts. The collier is bound to take as part of his hiring a house surrounded with pestiferous influences. He cannot help himself, and it appears doubtful whether anyone else can help him except his proprietor. He is to all intents and purposes a serf and his proprietor first consults his balance sheet, and the result is tolerably certain. The collier is also often supplied with water by the proprietor, which, whether it be good or bad, he has to pay for, or rather he suffers a deduction for, from his wages. End of quote. Footnote 72. Location cited pages 515-517. End of footnote 72. In conflict with, quote, public opinion, end quote, or even with the officers of health, capital makes no difficulty about, quote, justifying, end quote, the conditions partly dangerous, partly degrading, to which it confines the working and domestic life of the laborer, on the ground that they are necessary for profit. It is the same thing when capital, quote, abstains, end quote, from protective measures against dangerous machinery in the factory, from appliances for ventilation and for safety in mines, etc. It is the same here with the housing of the miners. Dr. Simon, medical officer of the Privy Council, in his official report says, quote, In apology for the wretched household accommodations, it is alleged that miners are commonly worked on lease, that the duration of the lessee's interest, which in collieries is commonly for twenty-one years, is not so long that he should deem it worth his while to create good accommodations for his laborers, and for the tradespeople and others whom the work attracts, that, even if he were disposed to act liberally in the matter, this disposition would commonly be defeated by his landlord's tendency to fix on him as ground-rent an exorbitant additional charge for the privilege of having on the surface of the ground the decent and comfortable village which the laborers of the subterranean property ought to inhabit, and that prohibitory price, if not actual prohibition, equally excludes others who might desire to build. It would be foreign to the purpose of this report to enter upon any discussion of the merits of the above apology, nor here is it even needful to consider where it would be that, if decent accommodations were provided, the cost would eventually fall, whether on landlord or lessee or laborer or public. But, in presence of such shameful facts as are vouched for in the annexed reports, those of Dr. Hunter, Dr. Stevens, etc., a remedy may well be claimed. Claims of landlordship are being so used as to do great public wrong. 
the landlord in his capacity of mine owner invites an industrial colony to labor on his estate and then in his capacity of surface owner makes it impossible that the laborers whom he collects should find proper lodging where they must live the lessee that is the capitalist exploiter meanwhile has no pecuniary motive for resisting that division of the bargain well knowing that if its latter conditions be exorbitant the consequences fall not on him that his laborers on whom they fall have not education enough to know the value of their sanitary rights that neither obscenest lodging nor foulest drinking water will be appreciable inducements towards a quote, strike end quote. footnote seventy three Location cited, page 16, end of footnote 73, end of chapter 25, section 5, part C of Capital, volume 1.